It's all here in the princess's book of etiquette. Let's begin. No nagging, bragging, sweating, fretting, slipping, tripping, slurping, burping, twittering, or frittering aloud. Stay present, stay pleasant, stay proud. Welcome to the graveyard slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sohini. And today, we're talking about Barbie as Princess and the Pauper. Loosely based on Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, this movie follows Annalise and Erica, two women from wildly different backgrounds who end up switching places. It was released in 2004, and... Pretty much everyone who worked on it has worked on other Barbie movies. So we think the Barbie movies are absolute classics. <laughs> they were a staple of our childhood and we have quite fond memories of it. But it's no secret that it's far from regarded as quality movies. So today we want to revisit one of our favorites of the bunch, Barbie as Princess and the Popper, and see if it holds up at all. I used to absolutely love Barbie when I was a kid. And this movie especially is one of the ones I remember loving. And I remember nothing about the story or anything but that one song, the duet that Annalise and Erica sing together, has been in my head ever since. It's intertwined with my childhood in a way I can't really explain. So I was definitely very curious to see whether I would still love it all these years later. Yeah, my experience was very similar. This was one of the movies that dominated my childhood, <laughs> my early childhood especially. I loved it so much and I had the Erica and Annalise dolls. Fancy. You would pull on their strings and they would literally sing a duet together. Like it was just the height of technology. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, everyone around me watched it as well. I mean, probably because I made them. But <laughs> to my recollection, everyone just loved it. And I didn't remember anything actually going into this movie, except for that one song, <laughs> the duet that you mentioned. It's literally the only thing that stuck around. And, you know, the fondness of this movie seems to be widespread mm -hmm. since it is, you know, a Barbie movie. It was straight to DVD. I couldn't really find a lot of reviews from critics. But I did look at user reviews just because I wanted to know if everybody else's experience is the same as mine. <laughs> and based on those reviews, most people seem to enjoy it. Highlights include how fun the movie is, how well-liked the songs are, and, most importantly, how Preminger is an excellent villain. <laughs> and... As you can probably tell, this is pretty much my current view of it as well now that we've watched it as adults. Critic reviews weren't as easily found for this movie, but I know that you found some, Sohini. Yes, I did. From a very reliable source. <laughs> Yeah, I did find a couple, and even in that limited selection, reviews seem to be pretty positive. I do suppose that the limited number of reviews is indicative of the fact that maybe critics just don't consider this <laughs> one of the movies they should be even considering as something to review. And I mean, I think that's fair enough. This isn't like a big movie, very low budget, straight to DVD, and both in the critics reviews and in the user reviews everyone was very pleasantly surprised because you don't expect much from this production and yet they made a really good movie it's not just like a good movie for a barbie movie it's just a genuinely good movie yeah <laughs> so yeah i don't think i blame <laughs> 
the critics for not picking up on it. And, you know, there are some who did, so. Yeah, I remember reading one that was from the Star Tribune that called it Citizen Kane of the children's film genre. <laughs> yes, I saw that too, which is wow. <laughs> A little much, I think. <laughs> I'll take it. I say that as if, like, I made this movie. <laughs> you know what? This movie made me. It's made me who I am today. Okay, so that's what we have to thank for your personality. <laughs> Good to know. So, as usual, we will be talking about this movie chronologically, and we open on a narration from Barbie. So, like all Barbie movies, it's Barbie telling the story, and she stars in it as well. And I really love how it opens. However, it made me laugh that they were just coincidentally identical baby girls. They're not related or anything, they're just doppelgangers. I completely forgot about that detail, and it's just hilarious. Yes, yeah, same. I was expecting it to be twins separated at birth or something like that but they just happened to not only look the same despite having different parents they were also born at the same time yeah i guess it, it is like a destiny thing there's like a sprinkle of magic there or something i don't know i will say though the opening monologue makes it sound so much like they're gonna be each other's love interests <laughs> it really tickled me even though the voiceover could have been a little bit cliche i kind of think it worked really well with the storytelling fairy tale vibe immediately it was just so distinctly barbie barbie yeah the color palette and yeah the look the style yeah exactly and it's very immersive and beautiful it's so wonderful i like the butterflies recurring throughout the opening scene and they also appear a couple more times in the film as well it could stand as a symbol for metamorphosis or freedom which is one of the central themes in this movie and i like that it applies to both characters equally as in erica is not presented as a caterpillar that transforms into a butterfly because she's transplanted from her modest situation to a much grander one and they immediately make the association of pink with annalise and blue with erica mm. very quickly with the butterfly like it's not just the dresses later on when they're adults but the very first shot is these two butterflies and so it's yeah i do like the butterflies as well but after this opening, we get a scene at the Royal Mine and we find out that they're all out of gold. And you know, bankruptcy as the main conflict is pretty good, I think. Yeah, not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. And it painted the royal family as caring. The country and its people's struggles didn't come from wealth hoarding by the upper class but a true issue out of their hands. And I like that. And we do learn later on that Preminger, the villain in the story and the queen's advisor, has been hoarding the gold for himself and has artificially concocted this crisis. He's the corrupt politician and person of power in this story. It's a tough line to walk because it could easily be that Erica's struggles is so tangled up in the royal family's greed, but they very easily skirt around that. And I'm just really actually impressed by their ability to make Annalise sympathetic and just everything they do with Annalise in this movie but the driving conflict being bankruptcy and like this political issue is really interesting and I really liked that yeah that's a great point as you say it would have been very easy for Annalise and the royal family to come off as insensitive and unaware of their privilege especially when we have a character like Erica there's a power imbalance yeah 
arguably, despite all the issues that Annalise is facing, Erica is kind of in a much more difficult situation mm -hmm. because, you know, despite all her problems, Annalise still does have certain privileges, right? So it could have been very difficult for us as the audience to not really be able to root for Annalise, mm -hmm. but they did a surprisingly good job at the characterization. And like you say, with placing the central conflict within the bankruptcy. And not just the bankruptcy, but specifically the royal family being worried about their people starving. And it's not just like, oh, our country is running out of money. It's specifically like people are going to die. And that's the problem that's moving the story along. Their need to solve this issue of impending ruin to their population. Yeah, and the fact that Annalise is willing to sacrifice her freedom in order to save the kingdom and its people. She's doing this for Erica and people like her. Yeah. Also, the fact that the actual story begins at the mine instead of with the main characters is quite telling. One of the complaints I remember reading from an audience member is that the movie ties up a little bit too neatly with the weddings like of course it has to end with the wedding but I think that's kind of missing the point because this starting point of the story at the mine is quite telling as to what the actual movie is about what the actual themes are about it's more about that idea of duty versus freedom which all the characters Annalise and Erica even their love interests even the queen they all struggle their with pets <laughs> <laughs> even their pets yeah <laughs> so I think this is such a clever way to start the story yeah and it really sets the tone mm -hmm. for the movie also <laughs> the thing about like it ending in a wedding it's an epilogue dude it's just like a little extra <laughs> bit for us to like be happy like fuck off <laughs> the real end of the movie is clearly about solving the issue i guess the point must have been that we didn't need the wedding for it to be a happy ending we know that but let me just be happy. There's so little to be happy about in life. It's just a bit of self-indulgence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's actually a really interesting scene where the queen is, you know, lamenting over this issue. And she says, like, she wishes Preminger were here, but he's on a long journey. And I actually wonder if it was a timing issue that ruined Preminger's plans. Because the queen wanted to confide in Preminger, who would then offer to marry Annalise and save them from bankruptcy except that he was away so the queen had to look elsewhere for help and found king dominic and we know this is news to preminger later so really if he had planned for the discovery of the mind's depleted sources better to happen while he's around his plan probably would have worked no way <laughs> <laughs> he just got sloppy at the end there you're right you know he is a great villain like his character is really well done but he does have certain issues with the finer details. <laughs> but that moment was one that I noticed as well, especially the part where the queen is looking up at a looming portrait of Preminger, and the angle makes him look so <laughs> intimidating. And I think it just goes to show how much influence and power he has over her, even when he's not physically there. It's still a tangible presence. But we follow this up with a scene where Annalise is at a fitting. And it really just jumps right into it. The fact that we start off the movie with this, as soon as the main conflict is set up, really feels like we're immediately getting to the meat of things. Namely, the hopes and desires of our main characters, Annalise and Erica. 
with just the single, albeit very long line from a character about Annalise's schedule, we understand what her day-to-day is like, the demands of her life, the pressure she's under, and how constricting it is. We get our first I Want song, and the song is so good. (laughs) It's a great fucking song. This also transitions to Erica at the dress shop, and we learn the details of her situation. Trapped in Madame Carp's employ. We learn that the terms of their arrangement is predatory, that the idea of paying Erica's debt is an illusion. When she claims she's paid off more than half, Madame Carp claims that they also need to account for interest and lays the blame on the large amount her parents owed, read how much they loved her, and how the parents should have known from the beginning. I like how she represents the crooked and predatory financial systems we live in, like the traps of capitalism, you might say. (laughs) How there's no such thing as a Escaping the ever-growing debt we're all under just by virtue of needing our basic needs met. In this exchange, they specifically outline needing the money for food, for example. It's definitely more complex than you would expect. Yeah. That line about interest, like, really struck me. It's not something you can escape. Like, it's, it's a trap from the very beginning. Like, freedom is an illusion. Yeah, and with this context set up, Erica's attitude throughout the rest of the song stands out even more because even though she's in such a dire situation, she still has hope for the future. She still strongly believes that one day she will be able to get her freedom. I don't know if that's naive or if she's in denial or if it's just pure determination, but it does paint her as resilient and hopeful. Yes, exactly. And that's what we all have to do, right? You have ever surmounting debt one way or another. And we have to be like Erica. We just have to keep going and imagine a future where we can pay off our rent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think this sets such a great example considering the target audience for this movie. Without being too heavy-handed about how strong she is, she's just a well-rounded character and all of them are, honestly. The characterization in this movie is so well done. Yeah, but in this song specifically, we learn that the number one desire for both of them is to be free. And I think it makes for a really interesting story that what they seek isn't exactly freedom from singular malicious people in their lives, but rather the constraints inherent in the lives they lead. That's why they can relate to one another, because it is a dream we all have, no matter the circumstances, to be free of one thing or another. So I love that this song articulates a need for freedom that's more abstract and present in most people, tapping into that human experience, not solely relying on background that's been constructed in this world specifically. And I think, again, That helps a lot in making Annalise a sympathetic character, that that feeling of being trapped is the focus rather than highlighting more tangible things that we can see are, you know, more privileges than anything else. Mm -hmm. And within this song, we also see that she does feel a sense of obligation to her duty and that she fully understands her role in the well-being of her country and its people and why this is being asked of her. I think one of my favorite lines of hers in the song is, I'm realizing that every present comes with strings. And she's doing it like while she's unraveling a ribbon from around a gift. It just very succinctly articulates the problem she has even with the privileges she is afforded. And doing it both lyrically and visually is just, it's great. Because like she's acknowledging the gifts, she's acknowledging what she has, and yet she's also pointing out the pitfalls that come with them. Yeah, and I think this point is emphasized in the parallel in them both singing free. It's showing that... 
every situation has its downsides. You know, Erica can dream of one day paying off her debts and being free, but for Annalise, she's being married off to a complete stranger, and once she's in that marriage, the prospect of getting out is pretty much non-existent. And she's going into it with both eyes open and willingly because she knows it is the right thing to do, and I just, I love that aspect of it. Another facet of the theme here is the fear of never seeing yourself outgrow your current circumstances and becoming something different than what you've already become, which is, I think, a fear most people have that have very little to do with the circumstances around them. I especially like how we learn why it is that neither of them feel like they can do much about the situation they're in, which is outlined here as their conscience. Annalise's reasoning is perhaps more clear as the path she has to take affects the people of her country, but we see that Erica has also associated her employment to Madame Carp to her parents. I love that they touch on these complexities, that it's not black and white, especially with the line, duty means doing the things your heart may regret. It almost makes it more either tragic or noble <laughs> because they already know that this path will ultimately hurt them but have to brave it anyway because of their sense of responsibility. Again, it's like going into it voluntarily because you know it's the right thing to do. Yes, and it makes for much better storytelling as well because it's very real situations and realistic situations that are driving these characters to do what they're doing. And it's not just conflict engineered for the sake of it. There's a very realistic reason for why Annalise has to be married off to some unknown prince. And it's not just because, you know, oh, you're at the age where you have to be married now. Yeah, it's not just tradition. Yeah. And for Erica, it's because of this unfortunate debt that her parents have left her with, despite their best efforts to, you know, protect her from this kind of situation. So it makes it all more believable. And, it, and I think it makes us care about the characters even more and what happens to them. Yeah, for sure. One last thing that I absolutely adore about this number is the fact that the final verse is applicable to both of them when they're talking about how, and I quote, there's more to living than gloves and gowns and threads and seams. These characters have been so perfectly written to be very distinct and yet be able to have these shared verses that talk of the same things even when the experiences attached to them are very different. It just felt like everything fell into place and fit like puzzle pieces when they sang that line. I love it. It's just like great writing for a movie, for a story, for a musical especially. So that's like one of my favorite things about the movie as well. That last verse where suddenly this very almost inconsequential detail that you wouldn't think would be like, you know, the thing that binds them together actually is applicable to the both of them and is a shared verse. I fucking love that. Yeah, the imagery, especially in this line, it's such a concise way of painting this picture of them being two sides of the same coin, basically. One is behind the scenes and the other one is presented in front. You know, now that you put it that way, I even think gloves and gowns and threads and seams, it kind of paints a picture of them being like bound really interesting how they have to come and thread <laughs> <laughs> so after the song we're back at the royal mine and we see two men stealing gold for preminger mm -hmm. at the beginning of the scene there's a beautiful transition from the sparkles left behind by the butterflies to the starry sky. And then we slowly sink and delve underground to be introduced to the antagonists. And I think this is 
quite a nice example of the way the movie plays with levels because we see both Annalise and Erica earlier in the song standing on balconies and I think that paints a nice picture of how despite their very different backgrounds they're equal in their constraints and the villains in contrast are presented as deep underground and it paints the picture of deception quite well because they're so far removed from the protagonists and their honorable aspirations. To me, it feels like an example of how well thought through this movie is because kids wouldn't really notice this kind of thing, but they put it in there anyway just to make a really good story. And I mean, I would say like, even if you don't understand that's an intentional thing and you know the mechanics of it but you feel mm. the effects you understand the story it weaves yeah it makes for very evocative storytelling and it's why i mean not to like harp on this again but it's like kids should have good movies this is how they learn you have to put in the work so that it conveys the right story and it matters <laughs> the kids will feel it <laughs> Yeah. But what happens in the scene is we actually see one of them like toss aside a rock of some kind and we see it break open to reveal a geode inside. And I think it's placed pretty naturally here for it to not come into play until the very end. Yeah. Because these guys don't recognize its value and they just like toss it aside because to them it's not valuable, but that may not be the case for everyone or even just factually. <laughs> and we establish later Annalise's interest in this field specifically. Yeah, you're right. The fact that they show us this so early on makes it so that it doesn't come as a last minute, hey, look, we're saved by this miracle. <laughs> it avoids that. And simultaneously, it also works to convey this theme of looking beyond the surface. Things are not always what they seem. So it just a simple thing works on so many levels. But we meet these two bozos' spot. <laughs> uh, Preminger, the advisor. And I love him. <laughs> I love his characterization. And he comes with a poodle, <laughs> which I think definitely represents his class or the class that he's trying to emulate. Mm -hmm. The fact that he wears purple also, yes. you know, associated with royalty, very luxurious. So it's hinting at his aspirations. But there's such a stark contrast with the setting that he's introduced in, you know, underground in a dusty mine. <laughs> and we jump into our second number, <laughs> How Can I Refuse? An excellent villain song. It details his greed, his deceit, his entitlement. In the song, we learn a bit more about Preminger, that he's had to work his way up from the bottom. And this to some extent explains his desire for more power and agency over his life. And I think interestingly, it's a narrative that parallels both Annalise and Erica's because he wants better from life. He wants more control. He says, today I am escaping, but it's twisted. It's wanting agency, but to such an extreme that for him it's wanting control, it's wanting power. He's not only willing to resort to any means, but he's also unwilling to take responsibility. And that's the theme of this whole song, right? He's almost acting as if what's happening 
is due to circumstances and not a direct result of his own actions. And I think the line that sums it up quite well is, if the crown should fit, then how can I refuse? How can I refuse is such a wonderful theme for his character because he is the type of person who takes and takes and takes because he believes that he's either owed it or is deserving of it or simply because his dream is for the glory around wealth and royalty. It's exactly as the phrase lays out. When he sees something in front of him, he can't refuse because he's so greedy. I just really love how it perfectly fits into his scheme for draining the mine, for marrying the princess as a stepping stone, for taking the throne for his own glory. And something interesting here that we learned from the song is that he's a peasant's son and sees the royals as reckless. It paints a picture of someone who feels like they haven't had it easy in the past and has been cheated out of certain things and how that fuels their current aspirations. What it does play into that's more transparent, however, is how he's, like you said, very much dressed up as someone from a higher class, both literally and figuratively. The way he's dressed, of course, and how he does his hair and arguably the way he presents himself and the little flourishes and over-the-top show he puts on in front of the queen. My favorite detail, however, are his heels. It could very easily be because of the fashion of the time period, where it was very common for men to wear heeled shoes, but we don't get as much of a focus on it for the other characters than we do Preminger. Like, they really, really focus on his shoes. It's also very emphasized how much shorter he is than the other characters, especially the protagonists. So we already know that this is a trait of his that he's concerned with and works to hide, and also one that he cannot change no matter what. The fucking heels tell a whole story about his character and how he cares so much about how he's perceived, and it is so well done. Yeah, great point. It's almost like no matter what he does, he can't quite measure up both literally and (laughs) figuratively. (laughs) Yeah, and his prestige is very much a smokescreen, and he's simply mimicking what he wants to become. Yeah. That actually is really well depicted where he introduces his new scheme to abduct Annalise and present himself as the hero for rescuing her. And this plan is played out in shadow on the wall. It's presented as so close, but it's also intangible. There's also this one point where there's a transition of him looking at his reflection in the mirror and then we get a shot zooming into his eye in the reflection and then we see all his fantasies of lying on a mountain of gold and Annalise falling at his feet or whatever. And the fact that it zooms in in his reflection, I think, not only conveys the duplicity of his character but also the fact that it's not the real him. In the song, he outlines his grand plan of the missing princess. It's a legitimate musical number. I love it. There's choreography and backup dancers. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it does what a musical number should do, which is move the story along. And it's got that, like, steady build that a lot of villain songs do. And the songwriting in this movie is impeccable. The songwriter, Amy Powers, has songwriting credits on some other well-known Barbie movies as well, including 12 Dancing Princesses and Island Princess. And also, she has been involved in movies like Ella Enchanted and Aquamarine, so... Two of my favorite movies! (laughs) 
Another thing that I noticed during the song is, again, the perspective and the levels. Because when he's saying that he's been lying like a rug, we get a shot of him looking down at us from above, kind of hinting at the fact that the tables have started to turn and now he feels like it's his moment to look down on other people the way they have been looking down on him. Also, I think it just adds to the theatricality of it all, like the extreme angles. Everything is intentional. He's not evil just for the sake of it. And his background and his aspirations, everything ties into the central themes so well, which is what I think makes him such a great villain. And every detail of his character is fitting for this world and this story and woven into it so very well from the very, very, very beginning. Yeah. But the next big scene we get is King Dominic's arrival, which is the king that the queen has reached out to to marry Annalise and save them from bankruptcy. And King Dominic arrives with his ambassador, but he's disguised as a page. It kind of does a pretty good job of establishing his character. Like Annalise, while he understands this is part of his duty, he does have misgivings and is concerned about marrying someone he's never met before. And that's what pushes him to take drastic measures and come as someone with a lower profile to check the princess out first. I'm honestly pretty impressed at how well this movie humanizes these often larger-than-life characters and not only that, but the specific circumstances that are pretty unique to being a royal and the specific predicament. I especially appreciate how they put effort into making King Dominic an actual character with, you know, anxieties and wants and, you know, his own obligations that he has certain misgivings about instead of just some guy with no personality <laughs> that we should just like because he's a king and the love interest presented to us. He very much has his own arc and conflict to deal with. It's actually kind of funny that this whole time, Dominic has like this is like my subterfuge I'm being deceitful I'm being sneaky this must be like the biggest scandal <laughs> while in the background he doesn't know that a million things are happening yeah it is a big deal but compared to abduction and all that criminal activity <laughs> going on in the background it is this is just cute <laughs> yeah we don't even get that much of Dominic in this movie, but even in the limited space, they made him so human. The fact that he gets to know the princess before he makes that decision, it makes a relationship so much easier to root for because at least there's some kind of foundation. Yeah. And we get depth on both sides. We get the complexities of Annalise's obligation and we also get it on Dominic's end. But then we meet Julian, who is Annalise's best friend, it seems, and possibly her tutor or something. But we learn that she's very smart and she has an interest in geology. I have no idea. And Julian, because he's such a good friend, takes her out on the town and she's in disguise. We also learn here in Annalise's conversation with Julian that he's a commoner. We get a line about how his family couldn't really afford a house and he lived in a single room. And we do see Annalise's ignorance of the plight of the common people. But again, they do a really great job of not making this a trait of hers that negatively impacts her intrinsic kindness and compassion or our view of her. And her naivete is not at all malicious. Yeah, and I like Julian's reaction to it as well. Just the fact that he brushes it off because he knows her so well. Julian gives Annalise a pink rose in this scene. And later we see the king giving Erica a blue rose. A great simple way of showing that these two see their respective partners for who they are inside. Because of the way the movie has associated Annalise and Erica's identities with either color. 
And actually, another tidbit here is that Julian calls the rose by its scientific name, establishing his expertise in botany, I guess. But it comes back into play later when he easily identifies the scent of lilac on Annalise's faked letter. And there's a reason why he would be well-versed enough to be able to do that. And when he finds more clues around Preminger later relating to plants. That's a great point. I didn't catch that. I think it also ties into the fact that he knows Annalisa's interests because science is something that they share an interest over. And with Dominic, when he gives Erica the blue rose, he picks it out among a sea of pink roses. Yeah, it's almost like even if you put like a dozen Annalisa's in front of him, he would still pick out the Erica. Like he would recognize her whether or not she was in this getup of a princess. Not like physically, just like recognize like her... He recognizes her for who she is beyond her appearance. Yes, there we go. So, Annalise's companion on this trip isn't just Julian, it is also her pet, Serafina. And, you know, we touched on Annalise's privilege and her ignorance. And a really interesting thing they do here in regards to that actually is how her cat Serafina has a lot of the traits you'd expect of someone who grew up in a palace, how she's unaccustomed to the streets, her vanity, even how she acts a little snobby, but it's much more forgivable in her pet cat rather than the princess main character lamenting over her current predicament. It's a great way of skirting around that possible issue while still painting a clear picture of her privilege in class. I really love the way they did that. Yeah, that's a great point. What I really liked about the pets that we see is how they paralleled their owner's stories. And I think they used the pets to emphasize specific characteristics in the main characters as well. So at this point, Annalise hears Erica singing in the distance and they meet and realize that they have an uncanny resemblance to each other. And this is where we get the famous song, I Am A Girl Like You. And this is when they get to know each other. And they write these two women quite well. They're very different, but similarly hardworking and, you know, have responsibilities that they take seriously. They also draw a parallel between Annalise's duty and what Erica is calling her being an indentured servant, which I think is a great parallel because it's not just Erica's poverty that's paralleled with Annalise's duty because that I think has some really easy pitfalls, but having it be her indentured servitude fits better, I think. Yeah, and I think it brings out the constraints of Annalise's situation better as well, because we get those very distinct parallels. It's almost separated from the privilege of Annalise's situation, because it's more about her royal duties and the fact that she is responsible for so many people. This is gonna go back to, you know, being trapped in certain systems, but this is just a fact of them being born. Annalise has never had a choice in this. Like, she was born a royal and she will always be a royal and she was always gonna have to give up her life for her people. And Erica didn't ask to be in this ever-surmounting debt just because she's born and needs to be fed. Neither of them did anything. They just existed. In Annalise's verse, she talks about how while part of her life is being waited on, there's a part where she says she has to watch strolling minstrels while she'd rather be doing something else. 
there's a performance to her life and habits. She's the one, at the end of the day, entertaining the entertainers. That is what Erica pinpoints as their point of similarity, that they would both rather be somewhere else. Yeah, she does explicitly outline that what they want is to have more control over their lives and more agency. I even wonder if she's expressing the common experience that is being a young woman. The way she puts it is wanting something that's ours, which arguably is a rare find when you're, you know, woman in a man's world, I guess is one way to put it. Exaggeratedly so for these two characters specifically, but one that most women can relate to at its core. It's like a very much universal experience. What I really like about this song is the message of not belittling someone else's struggles despite having wildly different experiences because both Annalise and Erica quickly recognize that their sentiments transcend their actual experiences. There's a fun little connection between them through the dress that Annalise is wearing in the scene, but it did make me wonder why Erica didn't immediately recognize Annalise at first by her dress. I know that she recognizes Annalise really quickly anyway, but I think if I made a dress, it'd be hard for me to miss it when I see it out and about true maybe it has something to do with the fact that she makes a million dresses yeah yeah she's making these dresses day in day out this is not something she has a passion for it's very much a chore yeah but speaking of dresses i just really love the parallel of erica making the dress and annalise wearing it it seems like one is working hard while the other one has it all, but Annalise is as much bound to wearing these dresses to perform her royal duties as Erica is bound to making them. Oh my god, you're right. That's amazing. I especially like the line where Annalise says, I wear the gown without my crown and dance around my room. It's like Erica is giving her the tools for this limited temporary freedom which plays out for the rest of the movie because you know erica's involvement does give her the tool to escape this predicament yeah you're right i guess their situations are intertwined long before they actually meet and this whole story plays out it's fate <laughs> so after this we actually see preminger's plan come together because the two minions trap Serafina to lure Annalise outside of the castle. And I honestly think it's a pretty good plan. My only thing is, where is all the security that they can just <laughs> kidnap the princess? I think it's a good plan as well. And it also ties into other story elements as well. Later on, Preminger is suspicious of Erica because Serafina isn't around. Yeah, everything has a rhyme and reason. Because at this point, we've already established Annalise bond with Serafina so it makes sense that she would go out there to try to find her exactly but Annalise ends up getting abducted and the plan is to keep her hidden until her wedding to Dominic is cancelled so the next morning the queen discovers that Annalise is missing and there's this letter in her room saying that she's run away because she doesn't want to marry Dominic. While the queen is reading this letter, we see Preminger pocketing the gold that was on her desk and we had seen in a previous scene that Annalise identified it as fool's gold. And honestly, I think that's pretty great writing. 
again, how could he refuse? But also, it doesn't exactly come back into play later in a major way. It just builds on his character. I really adore that because I wouldn't say it's superfluous, but it's only necessary in the sense that it is necessary to build his character. Yeah, even though this specific action doesn't come back later, his other actions later on in the story mimic this obsession with appearances and being blind to actual worth everything just works to establish him as this superficial character who doesn't care to look beyond the surface but this is where julian deduces that the letter must be fake because it's scented with lilac god to scent your letters <laughs> wish we could scent our emails <laughs> it's a scratch and sniff email <laughs> Again, it shows how well Julia knows her. Yes, it just ties everything together that we know about him and it makes sense that he would make this connection. Nothing feels out of the blue or just done to get around plot holes or anything. Yeah, and I was really surprised that Julian is the one who concocts the whole scheme because he goes out and tries to find Erica because he knows that they look identical and presents this plan of Erica taking Annalise's place while she's kidnapped so that the wedding to King Dominic isn't cancelled and I think one of my favorite parts is when Erica hears this plan and she's like are you out of your mind? I just all I could hear is like are you fucking insane dude? I'm not doing that. <laughs> Erica agrees to take Annalise's place while they're trying to find where she is. But there is one glaring difference between them, actually, that we haven't actually mentioned. <laughs> that Annalise is blonde and Erica is a brunette. And Julian, of course, has an answer for everything. <laughs> he has a wig. And also, I really like that one strand of dark hair that's perpetually sticking out of the wig. It's like her true identity as Erica keeps trying to break free. This is where we get our next song, To Be a Princess, where Julian gives Erica a lesson on how to be a princess. To me, the song really highlights how performative it is to live the routine of Annalise's life, how constricting it is, how the manners that some would think inherent in certain kinds of people are trained and learned mannerisms after all. It doesn't at all equate to anything intrinsic about them, say their values or virtue. Also highlights how actually impossible the expectations people have of Annalise are. Because when you list it all out, like in the song, it's ridiculous. And that is the point of the song. And maybe there's something there about the impossible expectations society has for women. I think the line that highlights it most for me is to be a princess is to never get to rest. I also really like the part where he just goes on a tangent about how pretty Annalise is. It's so funny and honestly really works. Erica is so amused by it too. Yeah. The part that I really liked is where he says, doors close and the chemistry grows. She's like a rose that's forever in bloom. And I like to think that this is indicating that Julian likes her behind closed doors where she can be herself and her beauty isn't diminished when she's not doing all these performative things, as you say, and presenting herself as a formal princess. Just like Dominic likes Erica beyond appearances, it's the same for Julian. In light of what you said about all these unrealistic expectations placed on Annalise and on women in general, I think that makes that line even nicer because with Julian, she can finally be free of these restraints. 
And near the end, the narrator says something like, sometimes being free doesn't mean leaving. It means choosing to stay. And the freedom they're looking for, they can find in their partners. Even though Annalise is still bound to royal duties to some extent, or even though Erica isn't spending all of her time traveling the world, they're still finding that freedom in their partners. But now that Erica's all dolled up, she is presented as Annalise to the queen. So now they don't cancel the wedding. But Julian, being a little detective, <laughs> he's literally picking up Preminger's trail. There's bits of a silver fir tree that tells him Preminger was in the western forest. Yeah, that falls from his shoe. Yeah, and again, we know that Julian is into plants. Yeah, Julian is suspicious about why Preminger would be in this forest. And while he's getting there, Annalise tricks Preminger's henchmen and escapes. What's fun here is is what this leads to, which is just such an interesting complex web of deception. <laughs> so many misunderstandings. <laughs> because now Preminger has seen fake Annalise at the palace. So he thinks that Annalise has escaped. And when he goes to the Western Forest, Annalise has escaped. So, so he truly thinks that Erica is Annalise. He's confused because why is she choosing to hide her kidnapping? She doesn't know that it's him. But why is she not writing out his henchmen? So he's trying so hard to figure out what Annalise is going for, what her angle is, why she's suddenly lying. And it's like he's so used to deceiving people that he has to believe that other people are trying to trick him as well. Well, if I were him, I wouldn't immediately jump to the doppelganger conclusion either. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. But it's just an intrigue that comes about so naturally from the various mm -hmm. overlapping confluence of events. And Julian is there. And Preminger ends up kidnapping him instead because Julian has seen that Preminger is the bad guy. Yeah, there's a lot more abduction in this movie than I remembered. <laughs> it's like Monte Carlo all over again. You're having flashbacks. <laughs> In the meantime, Annalise has now escaped, but she can't get into the castle because the guard doesn't believe that she's the princess since the real princess is already in there. <laughs> so she goes back to the village and gets mistaken for Erica by Madame Carp. So now she's once again trapped, <laughs> this time in the dress shop because Madame Carp locks her in to make dresses all night but she does like really mouth off to madame carp and i really like this detail because annalise has the courage and isn't downtrodden the way erica is by madame carp's incessant chipping at her spirit again it's so natural for a character like it makes sense because of the sequence of events she's so unaccustomed to being spoken to that way and is so used to speaking her mind it doesn't even occur to her to like keep her mouth shut or anything she just tells madame Corp to fuck off yeah it's an extension of everything we know about her so far the fact that she cares about her subjects and so when she sees madame Corp mistreating the other seamstress it's not even a question as to whether she'll jump to her defense yeah so now that Annalise is trapped again she has to hatch another plan and this time she deploys Serafina to the castle with her ring and a tag from one of the dresses in the shop I guess the plan is to get someone to investigate and trace her back to the shop my question is why not attach a fucking letter to the ring <laughs> she should have just written help on the back of the label <laughs> 
This is a scene that we get where Dominic thinks about revealing himself and introducing himself as the king to who he thinks is Annalise. And I really like the conversation between him and the ambassador because it illustrates that Dominic believes Annalise would understand where he's coming from and that he understands that this is also not an ideal situation for her. Again, it shows a humanity within him and a compassion to him. It really rounds out his character, especially because he's not sure that she'd be okay with it, but he's gonna do it anyway. Again, he has the same steadfast morals as our main protagonists do. And I especially like his parting words to his ambassador, I didn't want to marry a stranger any more than she did. Like he he's very much understanding of her position and it feels very equal to me. Yeah, you're right. I'm just imagining an alternate universe where Dominic and Annalise did have to get married. I still think that they would be like a really good partnership, even if they didn't necessarily love each other in a romantic way. He's just established as such a a good guy. Yeah, (laughs) a good person. But he doesn't actually get to talk to fake Annalise because she's too busy singing to Wolfie. (laughs) And this is our fifth musical number, The Cat's Meow. And it's about Wolfie, who is a cat, but he barks. And I love this song. It plays into the themes and it plays into Erica's character. Like you said, the pets emphasize their owner's characteristics and arcs. Wolfie has to be himself despite expectations and appearances. It's a great parallel to the main story and fits into the theme of identity. It's also a song about Erica herself. She's putting on a show and pretending to be someone she's not. But her humble pauper self is actually already good enough and worthy of celebration for exactly who she is. I thought at first having a barking cat is just a fun little quirk of the movie, but it totally has a purpose and ties into the theme of the story. I absolutely love it. Yes, I agree with everything you said, and I especially like the way it fits really well into the theme that things are not always the way they seem and Erica puts this positive spin on it that things don't have to be the way they seem and in fact you should celebrate the fact that you're unique and I really like that Dominic overhears that she's singing about how you should be true to your own self and you can tell that he's endeared by it and it makes for a really realistic reason why he would start liking her. He did this whole thing because he wanted to get to know the princess before he's presented as the king, except that he reveals himself before he ever truly gets to know Annalise. He only gets to see her. So I'm like, that totally negates the point. But then, you're right, he does see enough. This is what really cements it for him. He finds out that she's kind and the point that she's trying to make also applies to him in this weird situation. That she would understand And that's why he finally chooses to go ahead with revealing himself. Yeah, I do think the fact that he didn't want to cancel the marriage was less that he liked her already and more that he just wanted to give it a chance. And now he has more substantial reasons to actually be interested in her. I think he was charmed though by that introduction. Like she was a little bumbling and obviously, you know, nice and there weren't any red flags. (laughs) Yes, that's a good point. And actually, earlier on, when they hadn't met yet, there was this shot of him apprehensively looking up at Annalise's portrait. And I think 
the fact that when the real person arrived in front of him, she wasn't, you know, that picture perfect person. She stumbled and she seemed more human. I think maybe gave him a bit of relief that maybe. <laughs> yeah, she fell on her fucking face. <laughs> Maybe she's just as nervous as I am and maybe we're in the same boat and so would be able to understand each other. So Preminger actually comes to her room and God, it really like cements that the stakes are pretty high. Like they can be charged for treason. But when Preminger comes to fetch her, the dynamic present is so fucking interesting. Everyone has so many misunderstandings about each other and they're carried out in such a clear way that the audience immediately knows what's happening and what each person thinks is happening. And it naturally builds onto each other. But Erica doesn't know who Preminger is. Meanwhile, Preminger is trying to figure out what game fake Annalise is fucking playing. And Erica must be kind of lost at this point as well because Julian is suddenly missing. Preminger is also suspicious that Serafina isn't around. And yeah, you're right. I think the story is told so well that despite there being so many different threads to it, you never lose track of what one character is doing while something else is happening. But Preminger presents fake Annalise to the throne room so that she can get to Dominic and they sing a duet at the piano but it transitions into their time getting to know each other. I thought it was pretty lucky that both her and Annalise are apparently great singers. It's established that Erica is an exceptionally good singer. So yeah, this is the part where the queen should have called bullshit. She's like, no daughter of mine would sing that nicely. She's not that talented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She spends all her time down in that mine, gets her lungs all smoky. She sounds like she has two packets a day when she opens her <laughs> fucking mouth. But this is our sixth musical number in this movie, and it's called If You Love Me For Me, which you would think would sting (laughs) because Erica is in disguise. However, this song honestly doesn't sour with the knowledge that Erica is pretending to be Annalise because the entire time Dominic is getting to know the princess, it's Erica. It'd be different if he'd known Annalise beforehand, and so Erica is putting on more of a show personality-wise, but it just works well enough here because there isn't that element present. You're right. I suppose there's also an element of reciprocity in it because they're both asking each other to look beneath the surface. And one thing I also really like in this montage is Dominic playing with Wolfie as if he were a dog. He throws a stick for him to fetch. Oh my god, that is so cute. It says so much with so little that he just accepts Wolfie for who he is and would, you know, do the same for Erica as an extension. Yeah. (laughs) And we've already talked about how like the pets do represent their owners. So it's like Wolfie is the side of Erica that she can't hide, right? That she can't change. It's not Serafina. There's no way to make him Serafina. And it's like Dominic is accepting Erica for who she is. He's accepting her quirks and all. Wolfie and all. (laughs) (laughs) But as the sun sets, they're sitting on this bench. Dominic calls her honest, no pretenses. And I guess that does kind of sting. But I do wonder if what Dominic is sensing, how she's quote-unquote honest, is because Erica 
isn't exhibiting certain princess qualities like keeping a distance and putting on a mask for the mm. public. If it had been Annalise in that position, Dominic wouldn't be as charmed by her honesty, not because Annalise would be unkind or anything, but she's used to putting on pretenses as a princess. Erica just truly does not have experience in that at all. He's surprised by how easy it is for Erica to show him her personality. He is able to get to know Erica much better in this short span of time than he would have Annalise. Yeah. But back with Serafina, Preminger finds her and finds the tag, so he suspects that there will be answers there. And Annalise doesn't know Preminger's the bad guy. <laughs> and he's pretending to help her, but instead he drives her to the mines where Julian also is. And at the end of the scene, he traps them in the mine. And it's Annalise, Julian, and Serafina in the underground. Yep. Trapped again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fact that Preminger seeing the rocks collapse and thinking he's won, it's very much in line with his character. He doesn't bother to look beneath the surface. Doesn't even consider the idea that Annalise and Julian could manage to find a way out. He says checkmate way too early. <laughs> it's hubris. It is, which comes before man's downfall. At least this man's downfall. Yeah, and he's got a long way to go with those heels. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he comes back to the palace and exposes Erica as an imposter, accusing her of scheming with Julian to take Annalise's place. And he uses Annalise's ring as proof that she's, you know, been trapped in the mine by Erica and that she has died. And at this point, when Erica's wig is torn off, the imagery might be a bit heavy-handed, but I do like the symbolism of Annalise's crown falling to the floor because the kingdom's prospects are crumbling. So I think that was a nice touch. Yeah, and it's like the throne is up for grabs. Yep. They refer to the royal birthmark in the scene, and it's shaped so conveniently like a crown. <laughs> like a built-in label or something, like all royals <laughs> just come with a, with a crown somewhere on their body. They could have just had a, like a regular birthmark. It didn't have yeah. to be shaped like a crown. <laughs> or it could have been a scar or anything. Yeah, that would have been really fun. Like, because she's so interested in rocks and nature, maybe she was exploring the oh, mine yeah. when she was a kid and she got hurt and got a scar on her shoulder. That would have been better. There we go. We found at least one <laughs> one thing we have a grudge against. <laughs> yeah, the one bad thing about this movie. As Erica's being dragged away, she says so little and I wish she had just like rattled off the truth. Even if no one's gonna believe her, just say more, Erica. Plead your case. <laughs> Yeah, the I can explain followed by silence is always Ugh. so infuriating because the time you're wasting saying you can explain, you could have already explained. But Erica is thrown into the dungeon and we get our first reprise to To Be Princess. And the part actually that she sings is about having a stiff upper lip, you know, being strong and she breaks down after that line. But talking about reprises... We get a scene between Preminger and the Queen, and a reprise for How Can I Refuse? The number where Preminger pressures the Queen is really interesting to me. The Queen now has the same duty her daughter did. Even here, where he's cornering the Queen to marry him and make him king, Preminger is framing everything as if he's the only obvious option, and it's offered to him. Like this opportunity is being offered to him instead of the other way around. That is gracious of him to help 
he's not necessarily presenting this framing to the queen even, but it just shows how he perceives himself, or at least how he would like his actions to be glorified. Of course, he has no delusions about being anything but greedy for power and borderline fear-mongering, but this is how he builds up the circumstances to make it seem like he's the savior worthy of praise. And of course, the triumphant end to his song, the line, how can you refuse, aimed towards the queen, really cements the circumstances to the audience that things have fallen into place, that this is a sacrifice the queen has to make for her country and its people. It's true. She can't refuse. Even though, like, he basically laid out all his cards. He's like, I want to be king. And the queen is horrified by this. She literally is not able to refuse. Yeah, and I think it signals this switch in power as well when you go from how can I refuse to how can you refuse and he collapses onto the throne almost looking like he's drunk and I guess in a way that's what it is he's just drunk on power I especially liked this part where he's circling around the king's crown and he says it's nothing you ever use it's just this one small thing that I want he's reducing the king's authority down to the crown and it just shows his flippant attitude and hints at the kind of ruler he's going to be. And clearly his misunderstanding of royalty and that role. His perception is very much underlined here because of that line where he mentions like these fancy foods that royals must eat. You know, it's clear what his perception of royalty is. It's only the extravagance and none of the duty. Actually, the movie does a really great job of setting everything up so that by the time the queen is offered this heinous offer of Premager's hand in marriage, you immediately understand that she has to. And you feel the same urgency that she does. And that's really impressive because we've hated Preminger for so long and he's so slimy and you're screaming at the screen to not do it except they've done such a good job of setting up the conflict and the impending doom that when it happens you're like oh she has to take it like visually and lyrically and musically he's very much backing her into a corner yeah you're right the stakes are introduced like right from the start of the movie so it would be very difficult to not understand the urgency of the situation but back in the mines Annalise and Julian and Serafina aren't actually dead (laughs) they're fine they're just chilling but what happens is that Annalise discovers that the rocks aren't just rocks (laughs) they have geodes in them There's this moment between her and Julian where she makes a comparison to him being like the geodes. (laughs) Yeah, it made me laugh so much. It's like she's saying, look, you're as dumb as a rock. (laughs) But no, what she means is unassuming on the outside, but a treasure within, which is such a great fitting theme again. And this is the Friends to the Lovers arc that we all deserve. It's so great because honestly, in fairy tales and a lot of other stories, I'm just so tired of seeing this love at first sight trope that's based largely on the people involved being conventionally attractive. It's just so nice that a relationship is based on more than that, on taking the time to get to know a person before 
you feel a connection with them. And I quite like that they've been friends for a long time before the movie and only gets together in the movie at the very end. It really lets us build on their relationship and the characters throughout the entire movie. We also get to know them separately and together. Yeah. Another thing I really like in the scene is actually Annalise's smarts really coming into play with the geode, with the water, just like everything that happens in the scene because they figure out that they can mine water to float up into a hole that Wolfie has actually dug up on the surface of the mine. Yeah, and at the same time, it's also Wolfie's unique talents coming into play because he sniffs out the shaft, much like a dog. (laughs) It's every character using their unique strengths to get out of this tricky situation. This applies to Erica too. She hatches her own plan and sings the guard to sleep, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) and manages to steal the key to her cell. What's actually a really funny application of this is what happens with Dominic. (laughs) Because he also (laughs) plays his strengths and dons another disguise (laughs) as a guard and quote-unquote catches Erica as she's escaping. A line that I really like is when Erica finds out that it's actually Dominic under the helmet and he's trying to help her. She's like, wow, you do love disguises, don't you? Explains why he likes Erica as well. Their common interests are music and disguises. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they run to interrupt the wedding that's about to take place between Preminger and the Queen. I really like the shot of Preminger staring at his own reflection at the altar. (laughs) It's so funny. Also like his tread down the aisle and the fact that his two henchmen are his best men. (laughs) I really like the shot of Preminger looking in the mirror as well. That speaks to his character as a whole that he's been so preoccupied with himself that when everything goes down the way it does, he's totally caught off guard yeah Annalise shows up just in time to stop the wedding yes so at this point Preminger tries to escape on a horse we haven't actually talked about the horse much but so far in the story he's been sort of like a quiet witness to everything that's happening and helpless in the fact that he can't really do anything to stop Preminger but Preminger tries to escape on this horse and I really like that it's not these noble and righteous men who come to the rescue and capture Preminger but rather it's this seemingly powerless witness who now turns the tables and basically just gets tired of all of Preminger's antics and brings him to justice. I think that's a lot more satisfying, really, especially because Preminger's been on this power trip this whole time, and it's this seemingly unassuming character who ultimately bests him and brings him back down to the ground and shatters all of his illusions of power. Yeah, I especially like that it's the horse that has been under Preminger's thumb specifically, and someone who he's been, you know, mistreating and making an accessory to all of this. It's almost like the way Preminger thinks of himself under the thumb of the royals, except that this is the real version of how Preminger sees himself. This is a really interesting part of his character that I find fascinating, but he's one of those people who's like, instead of dismantling the system or fighting for equality or whatever it is, he instead chooses to become the person that is... That he's against. Yeah, that he's against. Like, he perceived the royals to be 
tyrants. And so he becomes a tyrant. And it's present also in the way he puts on a show of being from an upper class. He would rather make himself more palatable to that crowd than going to the root of the issue. That's a great point. And that's why I think it's doubly satisfying the way he's brought to justice because for someone who is so obsessed with appearances, he's humiliated at the wedding in front of all the attendees. And I think humiliation is a pretty good retribution for someone like that. You're right. That is like the worst thing that could happen to someone like Preminger. So everything's resolved and Lisa's back. And I love that when she tells the queen about wanting to marry Julian, the fact that he's her best friend is a big reason as to why she's in love with him. It's just so genuine. And I like that the usual bullshit about you can't marry someone who isn't a royal wasn't the reason. Yeah, it's like not part of it at all. Yeah, it wasn't the reason that Annalise couldn't marry Julian. Like Annalise, the queen was also just prioritizing their duty to the kingdom. And now that that issue is resolved because of the geodes, it's not an issue anymore that she loves Julian. And it's just so refreshing, honestly. Another thing I love is that their obligation to their duty isn't arbitrary at all. It's not just like, I have to do this because it's my duty, because it's tradition. By their duty, they mean like, these are really tangible consequences. Like there are people who are going to starve. It's not like my duty is to marry a king to better our kingdom in a more abstract sense. No, by duty, I don't mean marrying a king. By duty, I mean feeding our people. I think the fact that Annalise sees these people in the village firsthand helps cement the fact that this is very real. The stakes are high from the start. And so everything that happens as a domino effect, it makes sense. It never feels like conflict that could easily be avoided. It genuinely feels like the things the characters do, they have to do. Yeah, like we understand why they have to do it. Yeah. So Annalise does get to end up with Julian because now they can earn enough for their kingdom using the geodes that they get from the mines. And Erica actually chooses to go on her adventure and try to reach her dreams of singing all over the world. And her choosing to do this instead of staying simply for Dominic is so ahead of its time. I was very pleasantly surprised when this happened. I was very surprised. (laughs) I didn't expect it at all. I wasn't expecting this level of nuance. And it goes further because Dominic presents her with the engagement ring that was supposed to be for her when she was a princess. And says like, the person I wanted to give this to was you. And she takes the ring, but she says no promises and he totally accepts that it's just so wonderful and truly a pure act of love to give her that because he's not expecting anything of her he just wants to express how he feels about her through this gift yeah it's so refreshing to see that not only does erica prioritize this freedom that she's always dreamed of achieving but dominic gives her the space to do so He just says, I'll take the chance that you might not come back. It's so romantic. And it's like, it's also not the point of like, oh, I don't want my female characters to end up with the guy. It's like, it doesn't make sense for Erica to suddenly gain her freedom here because Annalise pays off her debts to Madame Carp, but then suddenly decide, oh, never mind. Like this dream that I've been dreaming of for years, I don't want anymore because I don't know, Dominic is so pretty. (laughs) (laughs) 
a valid reason to stay, but it doesn't make sense for her character and her arc. Yeah, it would have gone against everything we know about her if she had immediately chosen to stay and not fulfill this ambition. If she had done that, that relationship would have soured. They would have ended up resenting each other. Erica especially would have ended up resenting Dominic because in a way he kept her from finally reaching her dream when it was right in front of her. And the space that they give each other to lead their own lives separate from each other is framed as love. Normally, it's like if they stay together, that's love. But if they decide to part ways, that's like them prioritizing something else over love or it's not real love. It's never framed as a romantic gesture that they're allowed to grow on their own. But here, I think you don't question that they love each other even though they're separating and at least in my experience it's rare to see this kind of thing on screen yeah for sure and like it's not a tearful goodbye it's not sad at all this is the big romantic gesture yeah everything we've been building towards falls into place after some time has passed and Erica has traveled and performed, she does end up coming back. And it doesn't negate how she left at all. It's simply the journey that she's on. And I'm just so impressed by how well they pulled this off. It's very unapologetic and authentic in the intent to simply tell Erica's story. Like, the message isn't steering the story it's like the other way around, you know? Like, the intent is just to tell the story that fits Erica. And that's it. And of course, the quote here, <laughs> the thing behind her motivations is that sometimes being free is choosing not to go, but to stay. Because the real freedom is a freedom of choice. Exactly. And for Erica, once she's had the scope to do this thing that she's always wanted to do, her idea of freedom develops and grows along with her. Especially like how it frames this idea that you will always keep changing as you grow, like older. And it's not like one thing where it's like, oh, Erica has always dreamed of being a singer and so she will always be a traveling singer. Yeah, you can have new dreams. And I think this closing number, the first line, it says, you're always free to begin again. And I think that just captures the essence of it. And this movie ends with Erica marrying Dominic and Annalise marrying Julian in a double wedding. <laughs> But my question is, do you get two wedding cakes? One is strawberry and one is blueberry because they can't stray from their color schemes. Yeah, these women are allowed to change over time like normal human beings, except for their color <laughs> scheme. Your favorite color must always remain consistent. Otherwise, yes. people will get confused. So... What conclusions can we draw from this movie? In absurd conclusions, hats are the perfect disguises. They might even have magical properties. Yeah. Our second conclusion was, how did Annalise hear Serafina meowing from so far away across rooms in the castle? Annalise must have superhuman hearing abilities. That never comes into play again, but... Maybe she heard the sound of the water in the mine. And she told Julian to start digging. <laughs> Maybe she heard the geodes in the stones. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, an absurd conclusion. King Dominic and the ambassador have very elaborate codes. <laughs> yeah. 
when Dominic coughs, the ambassador takes this as a signal that the wedding should continue. He's like, if I sneeze three times and cough twice. <laughs> it means I have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really fun time. I love this movie so much. <laughs> so Hini, have your opinions changed? I didn't remember much of this movie at all. But I did remember that I loved it when I watched it as a kid. And that sentiment has not changed at all. And in fact, I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I love this movie now that I watch it again. Obviously, we try not to be biased on this podcast, but after all, it was a Barbie movie. And this is not the kind of level of detail and complexity that you would expect from a movie like this. So to find so much depth and so much to explore, it was great. And I'm so glad that this movie held up over time because I can continue to love this story that I loved as a kid without reservations because it truly is a high quality story and it deserves all the credit. It deserves all the hype. Yeah, I can't remember what I thought of it, but I do know that I was absolutely obsessed. It took over my life. <laughs> I loved it so much. And now... I understand why. I don't think Kid Me loved it because of how well-crafted the movie is. The commentary on social classes. <laughs> yeah, Little Me definitely was not like, wow, Madame Carp is the personification of taxes. But now I can appreciate it for every single bit of it. It's just so well written. It's an amazing musical. And this might also be one of the things that made me like musicals. So yeah, I absolutely love it. My opinion has changed in that it's gone even better. I honestly did not know what to expect. And I'm not the least bit disappointed. I'm so pleasantly surprised. And my expectations weren't even low going in. Like, it's got a great reputation with people our age. Like, I've got fond memories of it. I know that it's a pretty solid movie. So I went in with expectations. And I'm still so incredibly pleasantly surprised. So I will definitely recommend this movie to anyone. Literally anyone. Yes, absolutely. Especially critics. It's great that it's already such a well-loved movie. But I think it deserves even more recognition. Yeah. Like, imagine if this had been just, like, a regular animated movie. Take away Barbie, and it would be taken way more seriously. It's that same message of look beyond the surface. Exactly. When you mention the fact that it's Barbie's presence in this movie that is creating a certain expectation of low quality or potentially preventing a certain segment of viewers from giving this movie the chance that it deserves. One thing that came to mind is I think the fact that it is Barbie and the fact that it is targeted towards a young female audience does give it certain liberties. Because one of the main things I love about this movie and maybe about Barbie movies in general is that they don't shy away from depicting femininity and quote-unquote girliness. They don't see it as a weakness or something to be ashamed of and unlike some more recent movies they don't push it as a strength in a virtue signaling move either it's just that the characters happen to be female and they're comfortable in expressing traits that are typically looked down on but they also have multiple other facets to them it just feels like the creators had a freer hand in including everything pink and sparkly without feeling the need to demonize it. Having it be palatable to the masses. Yeah, exactly. But what they also do is make sure to imbue these characters with enough 
depth that it doesn't come off as a stereotype or a superficial understanding of what it means to be a girl. And what we end up with is these really well-rounded characters that we can easily relate to and it just so happens that they're female it doesn't get in the way and the fact that we can find this in a barbie movie the place where we might least expect it it just screams look beyond the surface (laughs) that is such a great point because like there is no pressure for the team behind this to appeal to any audience except for a young female audience Something like this, it's freeing. It's like it's you're just writing for the character. You're not writing reactively to an imagined audience. And it makes for a great storytelling. And I think it goes to show like how well writing for a specific audience will go. Because if you write it well enough, then people will relate to it no matter what, even though they can't relate to the exact situation. Yeah, with a good enough story, it just becomes about universal human emotion and at that point hopefully it's just that the audience can set aside their prejudices and give these stories the chance that they deserve to have so that has been our episode on barbie as princess and the popper next time we'll be discussing high school musical <laughs> if you have any thoughts to share on the movie send them in at graveyard underscore slot on twitter and instagram or email us at the graveyard slot at gmail.com so we can share on the podcast If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot.